On April 12, 2021, AHLA hosted a one-day virtual convener where a panel of distinguished participants discussed important aspects of racial disparities and equity in healthcare, social determinants of health, the impact of law on these issues, and what can be done to address these critical issues. This five-part series presents each recorded session of the convener. Full video and audio of the proceedings are available at AmericanHealthLaw.org slash racial disparities in healthcare. Great, thank you. Um, so the next panel uh, that we have is going to be the equity and COVID vaccine distribution. Um, and so I'd like to welcome everybody to that. I will briefly um, introduce the panelists and, uh, and then turn it over to Drew. Let me apologize already for mispronouncing anybody's name. Um, and feel free if you mispronounce mine, it's fine. Uh, my name is Rakaya Yerby. I am a professor at St. Louis University School of Law, Center for the Health Law Studies. Our panelists today will be Dr. Dana Bowen Matthew, the Dean of the George Washington University School of Law. Uh, we have Professor James Hodge, who is the Peter Kiewit Foundation Professor of Law at the Sandra Day O'Connor College of Law, um, Arizona State University. Uh, we have Dr. Harold Schmidt, uh, who was previously introduced. Uh, we have also uh, Dr. Andreas Gonzalez, who was previously introduced, um, and uh, Francis Crevere. I know I said that wrong, so I apologize. Um, and I am going to turn it over to Drew, who's going to introduce himself and then open up uh, the discussion. Uh, thank you, Rakaya. I'm Drew Bhattacharya. It's nice to be with you, everyone. I'm the Vice President of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at Advocate Aurora Health. And uh, let's uh, hit the ground uh, running here. So our topic today is focused on equity and COVID vaccine distribution. And we've broken it down into eight subtopics, which allows us about five or six minutes for each one. And uh, Professor Yerby and I will take turns um, facilitating that discussion. And so we'll begin uh, on the topic of vaccine prioritization. So uh, Professor Schmidt, um, we know that there are geographic disparities in risk and access to vaccines. And we've seen how some hospitals and health systems have used uh, zip codes to prioritize patients. Others have adopted uh, the social vulnerability index. Others have uh, also integrated what's known as the area deprivation index. So is, is something better than nothing? Is it more acceptable uh, to adopt one uh, criterion over the others? And so uh, thank you in advance for your participation. Sure. Um, yeah, and so just to orient everybody briefly what these indices are, just in case that's not your, your bread and butter, they're basically different compound measures that try to uh, give you a numeric score for capturing how uh, disadvantaged or not people living in a particular area are. And the, the ones that were mentioned now are the sort of main players. I think that's exactly right. We have the sort of scholarly version, which is the error deprivation index, integrates around 17 different variables, is very structured in the sense that you can't pick and choose individual elements. The, the score that you compute is done in a very mathematical way. The social vulnerability index was developed by the CDC for disaster preparedness, not at all for something like COVID. So for hurricanes and floods and things like that is however, the most widely adopted one. Um, and then there, there's a whole range of other ones that, that have been set out. California developed its own index. And I think to your initial point, that would indeed be my, <laughs> my response here that one is better than none. We, with colleagues, we're in the process of doing a systematic review, understanding the way these indices are constructed and how they conceptualize disadvantage. But the really important thing to understand is that for basically until last year, the way we thought about equity and vaccine allocation was through the priority sequence of groups, right? Everybody knows, oh, who gets it first? That was what everybody got upset about for the last half year. But the important thing that disadvantage indices tells us is that the equity story doesn't end when we allocate vaccines to the entire population in a few weeks, right? Next week, in fact. Uh, within each of the groups, people are at different levels of disadvantage. Within older group, within older people who are, of course, at more disadvantage than younger people, some people can easily socially distance in if they're well off and live in the suburbs. Other people who live in crowded inner city settings 
cannot. So that's the point that the National Academies really recognized in saying within each phase, we have to recognize uh, that people differ in their levels of disadvantage. And simultaneously, this is important for public health and equity, such that we prioritize people who are worse off in vaccine access. And that can be done in a number of ways that I think we'll also still talk about. Would appreciate that. You know, one of the things that um, necessarily flows from the guidance, um, whether at the federal or state level, is that there's no clear algorithm. So many of the considerations that are put forth are just that. They are considerations. Um, so mindful of that and against that uh, backdrop, uh, Professor Hodge, um, some states have actually encouraged consideration of protected classes and um, considering, you know, considering that, you know, what are the practical implications um, of that kind of geographic prioritization with or independent of those other protected classes um, for either organizations or the communities they serve? Yeah, Drew, great question. Listen, back several months ago, <clears throat> when I had the chance working with the National Academies to review the vaccine allocation plan before it went out, Harold seen it and many others on this call, is I alerted them you know, to exactly what Harold was talking about with the distribution. I said, listen, from an equity perspective, a lot of what you're suggesting in this specific plan looks on target and it's solidly backed by good scientific approaches to what we knew about COVID spread and other arenas. But I told them in regards to that, I said to the committee, don't expect politicians to follow. So what or how you're going to actually attempt to follow these specific equitable recommendations uh, across the United States with different geographic issues, geographic political priorities and otherwise, I knew it was gonna be a major challenge. You're seeing exactly that in the sort of first six to eight months of implementation of the vaccines themselves. Drew, your question really raises a great point for us all to consider. And that is in a federalist structure of which states get to call the shots largely about who's in line, when and under what circumstances, how much tolerance should we have for specific set-asides for groups, acknowledging that states won't all follow the same script. They clearly haven't with regards to COVID-19 vaccine. And most importantly, you cannot trip up on the sort of issues that get you into court on equal protection or due process or other specific fronts as well. The moment you do that, you're delaying actual vaccination implementation in a way that can only be deleterious as well. Those are the tripping points we've been watching all along and to be sure they continue, even as you know, we're about ready to launch into a sort of national program to make sure everybody has some access. These issues aren't going anywhere for sure. Great, can thank I you. add one quick point there? Please, Harold. So this is a really remarkable thing in the way this has played out. Um, as as uh, we just heard, it was national academies that recommended to adopt this in a broad way. But formally, it's a, a CDC committee, the Advisory Committee Immunization Practice that provides guidance to states who were, let's just say, not so hot on this. And they simply didn't really embrace it to a full extent. But the states went with us, right? In a situation where they have a lot on their plate, we now have a majority of states use a disadvantage index one way or the other. Colleagues and I did a couple of reviews of that. And it evidently means something for them. So that's what's really remarkable that within all the other variations that we've seen, this is something they weren't asked to do, they didn't have to do, and they still saw immediate value in it. And I think it is precisely because of this recognition that we had last year, that if we continue about allocating vaccines in ways that maximizes benefits, we're not going to reduce inequities, we're gonna maintain them or worse, exacerbate them. And I think that's the potential that, that is really remarkable that we're seeing there. Harold's point's excellent, to be sure. Some states have followed the script pretty closely, even without having to. In other words, the Fed's saying, you don't get vaccines unless you follow this script. So obviously the Feds have not done that and probably will never. However, some states have gone way off script too, flatly saying we're not sending this to prisons first. We're not going in that priority order. We're not making sure that we set aside 10% of the allocations for persons to actually gain access for equitable purposes on racial or other specific lines. Uh, listen, those have been tripping points legally. I'd love to hear from the Dean as well as to her thoughts. Thank you so much, Dean Matthew. Let's let's rope you in there. So as you know, it's not it, it's it's not just about uh, disparities, which we're all familiar about in healthcare, but it's about the unjust disparity and where you live matters. And so mindful of that, is race in place so inextricably intertwined um, that they necessarily, considering both, overcomes those concerns about prioritizing communities? Thank you for for joining us.
Thank you very much for asking me. I want to jump in and do two things. One, I'm going to defend the honor of the ACIP, the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices. I was on that committee. And uh, I do want to give a little bit of insight as to what we thought about race, specifically race in place and race in this vaccine. And then I want to be just a little bit provocative, if I may, and talk about what Vermont has done specifically to identify race as a criteria for prioritization. So first, with respect to the ACIP, you're right. We weren't as operationalized as you at the National Academies were. It was admirable. There's nothing that uh, either James or Harold has said that I would disagree with. I would say that there is in the ACIP effort a much more focused, broadly addressed justice uh, uh, justice focus than was on those operationalized uh, definitions that the National Academies were looking at. In other words, we were concerned not just with lists of prioritizations, but those larger issues of injustice by race and by class. And so we focused on questions of not only injustice, but inequality, unfairness, and the kinds of conceptual problems that would go beyond this vaccination. Very much to your point, Harold, that we don't solve the problem simply by prioritizing people because race and place continues to matter with respect to the distribution of comorbidities. The morbidity and mortality uh, uh, inequalities were a reflection of fundamental inequalities in housing, food security, employment, every one of the social determinants of health. And so we were talking about injustice much more broadly than respect to prioritizing a list with respect to the vaccines. Let me turn to, and I, I think because I only have a minute, I'm gonna use a provocative phrase. When we look at vaccine distribution today, we see white supremacy in action. We see a problem of morbidity and mortality that is disproportionately affecting communities of color. And we see the solution listed in priorities that disadvantage uh, communities of color. If you look at the 66% of people who have already received this vaccine, it is white people, right? White people are the only group that have a higher level of vaccination than they have cases, deaths, hospitalizations. People of color, African-Americans, indigenous populations, Asians, all of us have a lower level of vaccination than we have an incidence of prevalence or incidence or prevalence of the disease. That is white supremacy all over again. And so simply listing the occupations or simply listing the prioritization doesn't get to the bottom of the issue, I dare say. We had better be doing more with respect to structural racism than just telling people what occupation, what age, and where they have to go um, if, if they're on a list for priority. This is a bigger problem than that. Thank you so much, Dean Matthew. And I think that this, this really piggybacks on the, on the last discussion very well because trust really begins with transparency. And that transparency means uh, honesty, integrity across the board with all the indicators and how they relate and not just singling out some uh, at the preference of others. And so I appreciate your, your insight. And so turning now, uh, focusing on the race-based allocation of, of COVID belief and, and ethical decision-making, I'll, I'll turn it to uh, Rakaya to, to continue that discussion. Yes, uh, so let's go into the discussion uh, building off of that uh, and maybe coming back to you, uh, Dean Matthew, just about uh, this race-based allocation. I actually would like to talk about how we begin to address legally um, how we can attain equity. Uh, we, I, I think we're going to need some uh, more uh, radical um, and uh, forthright, um, uh, dramatic cooperation and collaboration between law, medicine, um, and health. Uh, we cannot leave just to the people who are activists on the streets uh, to ask for Black Lives to Matter. Uh, we cannot leave to those of us who are doing uh, civil rights law to advocate for uh, the ACA section 1557 to be enforced. We need people who are in health, healthcare. I loved the uh, earlier panel where Ms. Mills was talking about the pharmaceutical uh, industry and the medical device industry. We need the conversation about race inequality to be enlarged so that it doesn't just include 
theoretical uh, uh, discussion with academics, um, young people marching in the streets, um, or those of us who are writing articles inside of the academy. We need people like the people on this call to begin to care, not just about the tip of the iceberg, but about the very fundamental structures of racism that are affecting health outcomes. How would that look? Well, Vermont has shown one of the ways that it would look. They have pushed the envelope and said, the trope that says we are allowed to identify race and ethnicity when we are disadvantaging populations, but not allowed to identify race and ethnicity when we are advantaging populations is unacceptable. I don't care who's on the Supreme Court. I don't care who's been appointed to the Fourth Circuit. If the people on this call would say that we were perfectly happy during 1937 when we were redlining districts to say that they were infiltrated by foreign born, they were infiltrated by racial minorities, and that needs to be reversed because those are empirically connected to health outcomes. Why? Because education is determined by place matter. Food access, access to clean air to breathe and water to drink. If those connections were made, then we could begin to convince the Supreme Court and lawmakers that they are wrong with respect to whether we can or cannot mention race and ethnicity specifically when we talk about vaccine distribution. We've been too passive We've been too accepting and we've been too uh, siloed. We've thought this aggressive address of racial discrimination belongs to one and not the other uh, one of our industries. It's all of our problem. I'll close by saying this, structural racism kills everybody. So if you think about interest convergence, just to borrow from Derek Bell, right? We have plenty of data that tell us that death from myocardial infarction or infant mortality rates increase for blacks and whites where there is explicit racism measured higher in one county than another county. If it's not because this is the right thing to do, if it's not because inequity is distributed along racial lines in every one of the social determinants of health that we swing into action, then do it out of self-preservation. Racism kills everyone and structural racism is something all of us need to get much more serious and much more aggressive about addressing. Thank you. I will turn the question over to uh, Dr. Gonzalez. It's a, it's a great point um, that Dean Matthew just made. And I will tell you being very transparent here in our discussion that uh, we made that faux pas here in Milwaukee um, when we started actually looking at the allocation of our vaccines in the greater Milwaukee area, and I'm sure many of you remember, you know, over a year ago, Milwaukee was actually on the uh, center stage because we had the highest percentage of black males who were losing the battle, who were actually dying. Um, and as they were coming through the doors, through our systems, some of us were doing a better job than others in terms of understanding the issues, right, and providing equitable care, right? So if, if we were committed to that, right, it actually meant that then we're providing more services to those individuals and populations, right, uh, based on their symptomology and their the realities of those patients and communities. And yet um, that was not actually um, how we actually approached that. And so for our own system, as we actually looked at even advocating for the vaccines, actually our enterprise chief medical officer tells the story that we actually were uh, fighting for that. We were able to get allocations for some of our most vulnerable communities, right? Our BIPOC communities. And yet when we opened the portals, primarily through the electronic medical records, who was actually benefiting from that? It was primarily whites, right? Uh, because we did not understand the digital divide, right? Some of the issues that some of our communities, vulnerable communities actually were experiencing. And so it actually then um, showed us not only that reality, um, but then what were we going to do, right, in terms of that call to action? So we took the stance of then setting aside vaccinations or vaccines, I'm sorry, and then running vaccine clinics 
very targeted for our BIPOC communities. And so we had to engage our community at large, some of our community uh, partners, and it was actually through them that we're able to actually make some inroads, uh, whether it was the federally qualified health centers or some of the community-based organizations. And actually, I have to give a shout out to Drew because Drew and I actually are the co-chairs for one of the um, regional efforts here in Milwaukee, which is the Milwaukee Healthcare Partnership that brings health, healthcare systems, and the federally qualified health centers together in tandem to really address not only COVID-19, but any issue related to health or healthcare in our community. Very unique model here. And, and he and I know, because we have heard from our, uh, our own federally qualified health centers, where they actually, and it pains us to hear that even um, their, their fight for getting their staff vaccinated when they were actually in the frying pan was actually an uphill battle. And so it actually took Advocate Aurora, uh, Drew's uh, system and my system and other systems to come alongside and say, listen, yeah, you know, we would certainly be privileged, right, and honor if you would send those vaccines to our health systems, right? And for us to vaccinate our healthcare workers. But what about those folks who are the frontline folks who are, right, day in and day out, fighting this, who are actually exposing themselves at a much higher level and rates to get actually contracting that virus. And so it really took advocacy locally, regionally, uh, at the state level to make that happen. And so certainly it was actually one of those uh, mistakes that we made. It was actually a great uh, lesson learned for us, but certainly a great opportunity moving forward that we have built as a lesson learned for us not to repeat moving forward. One more point that I wanna make because I think it has been critical for us as well, you know, cause it's actually related to equity, diversity, and inclusion. One of the things that I have learned that has been so critical for us and profound is having representation of our communities at the board level. Board governance is key. And that is actually something that I wanna stress in terms of the importance, one of the key strategies that I think is gonna become important for us. Um, and so in our own system, having uh, BIPOC leaders who are sitting at that level, right, who are being obviously uh, unapologetic about keeping that agenda item for our CEO to have to report it, right, and to have to be uh, transparent and accountable to has become critical uh, and probably the game changer for us. So I bring that up because, honestly, one of our board members said to me uh, recently and said, Andres, if we would not build this as an standing agenda item, then we're going to actually, unfortunately, this will be diluted. We're going to move on to something else, something probably as critical as, you know, vaccine, right, which is probably the civil rights issue of our era. And yet, you know, we would be shying away from commitments and, and issues that we need to actually address and be accountable and be authentic and have authentic conversations and certainly have transparency around. And so I think that that has been a key for us here at Freighter. And I know that I talked to a number of other colleagues nationally and everyone has, I think, um, repeated the same thing that having that board governance in place has spoken volume, especially in this particular pandemic. Thank you, Andres. And let me um, follow um, to, to your point as a question uh, to Professor, uh, to Dean Matthew, and I'll, I'll also uh, welcome Professor Yerby as we, we talk about this in the context of uh, addressing the, the distrust and the mistrust in our, in our communities. Because, you know, it is a fact, as Dean Matthew, you've said that there is a disparate impact in what has happened, not only the disproportionate burden on the front end, disproportionate access on the, on the back end as we've rolled out the vaccine, um, absent that kind of heightened self-accountability that on to a certain systems or hospitals, what can we do to scale up those kinds of models? What can we do um, to actually uh, overcome those barriers as they exist so we can kind of get ourselves on that pathway, as you've alluded to, to make this um, culture shift, as it were, absent that legal mandate? So I'll get started. I think there are others on the call that have uh, more uh, uh to say about this, but let me <laughs> continue in the vein of being the provocateur here. First of all, we can stop the myth of uh, vaccine hesitancy. It's not true. People of color want to live just like white people want to live. People from indigenous communities, people from African-American communities, people from Latinx communities are not thinking about Tuskegee in order to figure out whether they will or will not get a vaccine. They're thinking about what's happening today in healthcare that is not crediting their views 
that is not respecting them as humans, that is not creating structures that protect their health. So you don't have to look back at the Tuskegee. We need to fix today's trust relationships, number one. Number two, the Pew Foundation did a study about two weeks ago and reported that just like whites, blacks, about 61% of them are wanting to look for this vaccine. So this myth of vaccine hesitancy has much more to do with access, has much more to do with transportation, has much more to do with whether community health workers are actually sending out the messages to community members in ways that they can trust and relate to. It has much more to do with the location of hubs and the distribution of information online or not online, right? Southeast DC, which is right down the street from me, bred for the uh, cities, has vaccine distribution. There are more white people online down there. They have never made it down to Ward 7 and 8 in previous settings, but they're down there now taking up vaccine. Why? Because they're on the internet and they're able to sit and do the refresh regularly, right? So these are the structural issues that really do matter with respect to what we can do. And let me make no mistake about it. None of this is a surprise. We saw with H1N1 that uptake by race was severely disparate. It is unethical and immoral that we weren't ready then and we aren't ready now to intentionally address racial disparities with respect to uptake. And telling ourselves the myth of vaccine hesitancy is one of the biggest problems and barriers that I think we need to fix. And I'll jump in just to add on uh, to that, right? That it also is about what we are providing for people to do to get the vaccine. We are not providing for paid time off to get the vaccine and right, even the option once you get the vaccine, if you need to take time off, right? I recently got the vaccine, I was out for two days and that was just the first shot, right? And I have uh, the privilege to be able to do that. Many of our essential workers don't. And what is really sad about that is many of our essential workers working with and for healthcare institutions do not, right? So if you're wondering why uh, a traveling nurse or a nurse direct care worker who's providing care in a nursing home or somebody's home doesn't want to get the shot is because they can't afford to take off work right? You may be giving out the shots to the people in the nursing home, but you are not ensuring that they could take off time if they need to, to actually uh, deal with the symptoms of it. And so the hesitancy is really about what has happened and not just in how people have been denied care, how they have been blamed for these inequities and infections and deaths, based on what black culture or Latinx culture that is somehow their fault. And now all of a sudden you want them to rush to get the vaccine where you're not even ensuring that they're going to have what they need to be able to get it, which is time off and paid sick leave. So I would add to that. I also, I see uh, Harold's hand up, but uh, Francis, I wanted uh, Francis Mills or Francis, I wanted to give you the opportunity also to speak in uh, about these uh, topics as well. Well, Rakai, I'll jump in and say for the city of Cleveland, one of the challenges is that you do hear that terminology vaccine hesitancy uh, being bandied around as a challenge. We are seeing in our African-American community and Latino communities that numbers are down, but it's a matter of how well has information regarding availability been communicated to uh, folks on the ground, but also utilizing traditional media, radio media, media in language that people can understand. And so to date from December, we've probably set up probably over a hundred pods in the community and have really distributed all of what's been allocated to us. Now, do we have those sites where aggressive uh, outreach and community engagement needs to happen? Absolutely, how we're doing it, we're doing it through partnerships with nonprofits, partnerships with faith-based community, partnership with grassroots activists, partnerships, we're letting people tell us where to go. Uh, when we're making that decision, 
because where are new cases happening? Uh, in a place like Cleveland, what what good is social vulnerability index when everybody's socially vulnerable? And so we could go anywhere, but we have to go to places and hold those pods where it's convenient for individuals to come. So that's the way we're handling it. It's a daily challenge. Uh, we're more likely to take all who, who comes, whoever wants it, we wanna make sure that it's there. And then we wanna apply aggressive education for those who in the event they might be hesitant. And people will tell you why um, they're not interested or at this time, or we would like to delay our uh, scheduling of our appointment. They'll tell you that, but um, not shutting the door and making it difficult for people as they are ready to come in the door and get the vaccine. And I, I could add to that, that um, so one of our facilities in Spokane, um, they had, they vaccinated the whole native community and they were like, what else are we going to do? And so they, they went to NAACP, they went to local Asian organizations and started vaccinating those folks. And I, I do think prioritizing is a little, you know, is going to be, it is essential or has been essential or figuring out how that works. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about the digital divide. Um, we have in, in, with COVID, we've seen that, I mean, obviously with the, with telehealth and everything, I think a lot of folks have, you know, we've all had to move really quick to get comfortable online, but we did see that um, a lot of our patients didn't have access to um, internet or did not have a smartphone or a laptop um, and could not access those telehealth services that they may need. Um, that, you know, that may be hit during, and so we know, we know that, I mean, we're talking about infrastructure a lot these days in DC. We know that um, Indian Health Service is severely underfunded. We know that tribes are severely underfunded. And so um, the access to internet broadband is just a huge, huge, huge problem. Now, my organization represents the urban component of that, which has a lot of problems there. One being that legislature, the legislature does not think that Indians live off reservations. They think all of us live on reservations when 70% of us live in urban settings. And so a lot of the resources that are considered for our community are only considered for reservation based um, because they think that we all still live there. And so that just becomes a communications challenge even to get the resources to folks as well. Um, to make sure that the feds are accounting for and thinking about the 70% of us in urban settings who still have, you know, I, we were at some point collecting old cell phones to try to give to people. So at least they had a phone that they could call. And, and that became a policy issue at the very beginning when they were just like, oh, telehealth, but not telephone. <laughs> um, and so there's a lot of, a lot of investment, I think that needs to be done um, in, in infrastructure to help um, bridge that access. And, and we've seen some things happen, but I definitely, I mean, I, I'm happy to see that, I guess, the infrastructure package that they're trying to tackle things like this now, because, I, I, you know, it's an H1N1. I mean, um, urban Indians, at least, were completely forgotten about. The whole system did not even account for the urban Indians. And so um, we were one of the highest to die. Um, in that in that pandemic as well. And so, it, you know, it, the numbers are always going to be the same as long as we are trying to respond to inequity versus implement equity in our systems, I think is, is that's kind of one of the challenges I'm really seeing. Francis, thank you so much for that observation um, on the digital divide and just a, a couple observations from my end. Um, th this is exactly what we saw unfold in our own system. When we did that pivot and we started to do more live outbound calling, uh, we saw the vaccination uptake go from something as low as 20% in some pockets to 100% of the just because folks would pick up the phone and just make the calls as opposed to relying on email or other things. Um, another point that was seeing in the chat, the great point that, that Francis uh, Mills has raised is looking at um, call-ins, walk-up opportunities for access. Um, this is exceptionally important in certain communities. When um, earlier they'd introduced me as overseeing a, a lot of our community-based flu initiatives, what we noticed is that of the 55 clinics that we had set up last fall in the communities, 
the ones that had, um, they were all walk-ups, all free of charge, but we were also other social needs at the time. And so the one clinic that also had voter registration as part of that kind of package of service, the highest uptake of all the clinics. So it was recognizing that the needs that we are prioritizing aren't always the needs the community might be prioritizing. We need to look at this, the context um, of what uh, communities want um, at a given time as well. And so having that community focus, um, community view at the table, give you a chance to, to chime in there, but also um, Rakaya, to, to hand it back over to you as we transition to the next subtop. Great. Um, I want to turn it over to Harold. I know you wanted to speak on this, um, and then I'm going to follow up with a question about uh, crisis standards of care. And sorry, is this, when you said speak about this, was that the trust point? Because I think I'm just going to do, this got me all through uh, middle school that I always wait until the smart kids have spoken. And then I would say, that's just what I wanted to say. You, you said it so much better. So I, I'm not going to say more on that. Uh, but happy to talk about crisis center of care if you'd like to. Yes, okay. yes. Tell sure. me more about that. So, so I think in many ways there is a very direct relationship, but also in a very interesting difference. The direct relationship that in my world in bioethics, we've really seen, I would call it a seismic shift that pretty much a year ago, the received wisdom was, well, you know, absolute scarcity. So we maximize benefits. Not everybody can have everything. That's the way it goes. And I think within less than a year, we've just come to this realization that if we do that for ventilators or other things, what that means is we'll either maintain or worse exacerbate inequities that, that we see, right? And, and so we've really seen the shake around, switch around in quite a way that the, the need to mitigate this inequitable outcomes has been recognized within the field. So, you know, again, to be fair, what happened a year ago is that, was that many people were very concerned that if we have first come, first serve, that would be highly inequitable. We had some states that would exclude particular um, people from access to a ventilator, and that was bad. That was clearly, you know, very bad. But the problem is that some of the guidance that have been set out in response also had issues. And so I initially wrote an op-ed in the Times that I put in the chat in a moment, looking at one influential model guidance that drew on the SOFA score, which is a clinical measure to assess your likelihood of surviving the ICU and considered life expectancy in ways that I felt would disadvantage, in particular, the chances of African-American people who were more disadvantaged to get a ventilator. Um, the, later, I followed it up with a piece with Amaka Enyanya, an outstanding nephrologist, and Dorothy Roberts, who many of you know as a legal scholar and a sociologist, of course. And we looked less at crisis center of care, but just at SOFA and made um, six concrete recommendations what you should do. And the main problem is, and I put that early in the chat too, with uh, the SOFA score and integrating creatinine is that in measuring creatinine as an indicator of kidney function, we're measuring simultaneously social disadvantage and an objective clinical measure, right? Many clinicians will just say, well, we're just doing objective science here. But the fact is you are measuring disadvantage. And the question then is, well, what do you do about this? Because as we hypothesized initially in our paper, it can make the difference between being assigned the highest priority and not. And more recently, and I'll be sure to put that in the paper too, we have empirical evidence for this being true, where uh, uh, Dr. Shana and colleagues looked at a large study set of more than 100,000 um, patients and found that, and, and this is a site here, I think I have it up, yes, that in 81% of cases, Black patients included in lower priority crisis standard of care categories, and in 9.4% uh, of all black patients were erroneously excluded from receiving the highest prioritization, right? So there's no question in my world and in the medical world now that using creatinine within the SOFA score has these harmful consequences will from the start disadvantage worse off uh, African-American people. But the question is, what do you do about it? And one interesting thing here is that much as we're rightly obsessed with vaccines or focused, let's say on vaccines, when I raised this initially last year, many of my colleagues would say, well, look, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Can you please, you know, leave that for later? So, you know, I, I thought, okay, that's interesting. Now we're luckily, and hopefully we'll stay that way, can avoid needing to think about rationing ventilators, but we can't leave things stand that way. And I'm heartened that the National COVID Plan did ask the Health Equity Task Force to provide federal guidance on stands of care, on crisis standard of care. We made six suggestions for what you could do that I'm not going to work through, but I'll just give you the titles that... You can improve diversity in decision processes. You can adjust creatinine scores. Uh, you can drop the scores. You can find alternative measures. You can add equity weights. Again, that's how I first thought of using a disadvantage index. 
or you can reject the dominant sofa model altogether. So this is six constructive elements that we feel you should at least think about. <laughs> and doing nothing is not an option, right? We've established the fact that these protocols have inequitable outcomes. We can't hide between objective, behind objective science and we need to figure out what we do as a society about it. But the bottom line again for me is that we've made this recognition that simply maximizing benefits is no longer acceptable. And we now have to really learn something from this uh, period and uh, be clear about how we want to do this better. And I'll just jump in and to say that now is the time, right? Because as we're looking at Michigan, as we're looking at the Midwest, we are ramping back up, unfortunately, to a lack of um, ventilators, lack of access to beds, right? And so it becomes a question that we have to handle now. Um, I'll turn it over to you, Drew, unless somebody else wants to hop in. Great. You know, it seems that many of the um, the obstacles that we're seeing are, are really part of a broader issue of justice. Um, and Professor Hodge, kind of bring you back into this discussion here. We talk about justice because we know that the failure to justly allocate, um, whether it was ventilators in the front end or not, vaccines in the back end contribute to these higher rates of morbidity and mortality. And you noted back in 2004 that we've seen this before. This is not unprecedented. We saw this with the influenza outbreaks where high priority groups uh, were not always vaccinated ahead of healthy individuals. So what have we learned from these prior missteps? What are your suggestions uh, for going forward? Let's be clear about a couple of things with COVID-19. It is unprecedented. It blows away everything else we've seen before. It's a totally different scale and it will forever set for this century what we have and have not done well in response to allocating scarce resources. That what Harold's talking about with crisis standard of care, I've worked with the National Academies on that. We have some new work to be done there. What Dana's talking about with some of these really just structural issues underlying it, COVID-19 blows all that off the roof. And it, it just does it because of the magnitude of what we're seeing. This is that big event. Drew, you're right. What we observed back in the past, we're even seeing perpetuated to this day. And some of it, I dare say, we're going to resolve post-COVID. I think we actually have seen enough nationally to understand with leaders like Dana and Rakaya and, and Don and others, we've got a chance now to actually set a new, you know, a new scale going forward. But let's also be conscientious of a couple of things as we do so. First, ethics will get us so far in relation to what we should do or how we should respond or what or how it could be a good thing to actually allocate like this. You got to make it stick legally. And we're going to see, I think, massive legal changes in response to how we respond or how we actually handle these types of pandemics or other issues going forward. That's what COVID-19 will actually address. We're talking about a very different national infrastructure for how we should proceed. There's going to be some changes from our federalist system and approach that may help remedy some of what Dana's just been so eloquent in talking about and Harold's addressed and so many others. But I think the one critical facet we've seen is that there has been a couple achievements. Let's not lose stock. Of. First of all, we're passing out COVID vaccine for free. We're handing this stuff out nationally. That's a good objective. We set that all along and it's been done. We have safe vaccines. That's another objective. Thank heavens these vaccines are safe. Throw a little in more in there about AstraZeneca's related issues in regards to that. Oh, it's just gonna be more problematic than ever. What we've got to solve is the allocation conundrum. That's solvable. It's gonna take a heavier approach at the federal level, I predict for the long term. And we're going to need to see a lot more outlets extensively across the country able to dole out vaccines now that they're going to be open wide to the U.S. population. In other words, any access issues we've seen so far might be remedied if every Walgreens, every CVS, and every Walmart can actually do these vaccines in real time. Those can make critical differences. We've learned a lot, Drew, but the next part of this century is where we'll see it effectuated. That's, I think, where we're going, and law will be absolutely critical to that in reflecting the ethical balance as well. Thank you so much. I think that the, that key point, you know, meeting people where they are physically, financially, um, across their own knowledge base, because as uh, Dean Matthew pointed out, it's not just about, it, it's not about these presumptions of hesitancy in that narrow way that has been portrayed, but also across that continuum of folks who have legitimate concerns. If I have so-and-so health condition or if I have these access issues of transportation, please help address those, right? Um, Rakai, let me, let me bring you back in here um, as we talk about equity and the law and, uh, 
and kind of lead it off with you uh, as we as we wrap up. Yeah, and I'm going to turn it over to Dean Matthew, who I know is going to give us the answers or at least be provocative and telling us what we need to do. Okay, so um, uh, there's no way to live up to that, but I do have something that I'd like to close to say. First, thank you for having me on this panel. One of the reasons I was so excited to get this, uh, the honor of having this invitation was because of the audience. Uh, not only the people in this uh, panel, uh, it's an honor to be here with this group of, um, I I'm gonna call you activists because your intellectual work is, is activism. Um, but the people uh, from the American Health Law Association and those that listen are the answer in my view. And let me just lay that out theoretically first and then touch on it pragmatically. Everything that Harold and James and others have been talking about supports a theory called fundamental cause theory that Link and Phelan reported 1995. 2015, they identified structural racism as a fundamental cause of health disparities. Now, Rachel, Rachel uh, the CDC recently said structural racism is a public health uh, threat and crisis. But let me just break down what that means. From a theoretical standpoint, it means that if we attempt to address a crisis without deliberately intentionally addressing the structural racism that envelops that, that crisis, we're gonna see exactly what Harold described. The inequities are going to get worse. And this is not news. This is not news at all. We've seen it. The classic example is cigarette cessation, right? So when you put resources out without thinking about race, gender, economics, all you do is put those resources out into an inequitable system and they get inequitably distributed. And so people who are disadvantaged are worse off after the solution has been found than they were before. So the only way to attack this, and I share James's optimism, the only way to attack this is to recognize that we are at a crossroads, at an inflection point. Either we take structural racism seriously and attack it intentionally, or we make it worse. And when I say intentionally, I mean the kind of bold moves that Vermont has made. I mean the kind of attacks on race and race discrimination on white supremacy that Vermont and even West Virginia has made. The reason I love what West Virginia has done is because they looked across their rural communities and said, I'm gonna use your word. I thought it was so beautiful, Francis. I said, ain't nobody coming to get this vaccine unless we do something deliberate. The only way we're gonna get this vaccine out is to use community pharmacies that people already trust. And that's why West Virginia and Alaska have been so successful. The only way we're going to get rid of structural racism is if people in the health community make the empirical connection between inequality, racism, discrimination in housing, education, food, employment, you have to make that connection with health outcomes because that's the way policy people are gonna listen. That's the way lawmakers are gonna listen. They are not gonna listen just because the academy is saying that educational deficits produce health inequality. They are not gonna listen only because communities are marching in the street. They're gonna listen when you empirically show the connection that health outcomes are directly related to racism, to people not getting promoted, not getting jobs, not getting educational equality, not getting the right to breathe free and clear air. I come from the South Bronx, asthma alley. Why? Because the law permits waste transfer systems, highway systems, all of those are connected to health. And if you, the health industry, you health lawyers, you health providers, begin to become civil rights advocates to change the laws that are creating discrimination in each and every one of the social determinants of health intentionally, that's the only way we're gonna beat this inequality. It will just continue to get worse otherwise in my view. Francis, did you wanna add something? Yes, thank you. Even though I can't follow her and Dean Matthews, absolutely amazing. You are my new favorite person. Um, I, I wanted to put a plug in here as we are thinking about diversity and being our, the, our own agents for change, one of the things that um, I have 
I, um, I'm, I went to the University of Arizona, James, so we're natural enemies. But one of the things I advocated when I was in law school was um, man mandating um, critical race theory. Um, and I definitely think that this is something, I mean, I'm talking to all the lawyers. So I want to just say that, like, if any, I think, you know, and, and one of our things was that, you know, I walked into a white law school, I thought it was gonna be a whole bunch of Indians like me, and it was a whole bunch of white people. And um, I grew up in an all black area. So I was like, where are, where, where are all the minorities? And I grew up in South Florida, there's like, we had everybody was wonderful. And I was like, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, um, and, and what I learned was, you know, we are part of this cog, we are part of this system. And if we don't acknowledge that race, is a factor in this, then we've already lost. And I spoke, um, you know, a few years later after law school, I spoke to um, George Zimmerman's attorney um, who presented at my undergrad. And I wanted to ask him about this. And he said that he had served, he's like, I had served black men my entire life and the system has always failed them, always, always. And um, I was surprised to hear that from George Zimmerman's lawyer, however, but needless to say, and he did say that. He did say he thinks that as long as people are still pretending that things are colorblind, like you're never, and you know, that case changed my life because I saw how race, you know, would, how if you don't talk about it, things can happen. Um, and so I just want to put that plug for the law, the deans here and any law students or future law students um, to push for critical race theory, because I think we have to, like, we can't just pretend that race doesn't matter in our own clients or any of these other things. So I just wanted to put that out there as well. Francis, I can't speak for U of A down in Tucson, but I bet you every single law school represented on this call from the deans to, to uh, St. Louis to my own here at ASU do have strong new affirmative initiatives towards that specific objective. Now, those these cannot be flash in the pan initiatives. These need to be permanent fixtures. But to be sure, yeah, we're, we're increasingly on board with it at ASU and I bet every other law school as well. I'm glad to hear that because Arizona needs it. <laughs> so. And with that, I am going to close this session and maybe turn it over to you, Cindy. I know we are supposed to be taking a break before we pick up the, the next panel. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.